Welcome, everyone, to another edition of the Sock Takes Pod, sponsored by Roughneck Scarves. This is episode 42. We got a great edition of the podcast lined up for you today. Big panel. We got a few regulars um, and a couple familiar faces and a new first-time guest that we're, we're thrilled to have. So, first of all, let me introduce the, the regular panelists. You might know him as Sweet Baby, but uh, we prefer to call him a standout substitute at Carthage College. It's none other than Sweet Baby Aaron Gunyan. What's going on, Aaron? Kevin, it's, it's really great to be on the pod with you, and that intro was fantastic. Uh, you're really bringing back some solid memories of riding the bench in Kenosha, Wisconsin. So thanks for that. And I'm glad to be here. Let's have some fun today. Awesome. Also joining us, um, he's a self-described vector nerd, but even dweebier than that, he writes for Sock Take. So it's our good staff writer, John Leonard. What's going on, brother? Hello. It's actually finally been dry for more than 12 hours here for the first time in what feels like a month. <laughs> nice yeah man stay dry out there it's rough yeah we had the fun of the champions league last night here in dallas even though it wasn't a great result we still got to get you know inebriated in the rain which is always fun <laughs> i saw you uh you posted on social media you you got caught on the the tv broadcast drumming so yep yeah hipster and interesting. Out. Yep. full <laughs> hipster mode in the supporter section i love it yeah all right, and also joining us tonight, he's been on our show before as a guest, but this time we're honored to now have him on as a Socktakes contributor. It's Kartik Krishnayer. How's it going, Kartik? Kartik, you there, brother? It's great to be with you guys. It's so great to have that line contributor. That's, uh, <laughs> that's a first-rate line. Yeah, yeah, we're so glad to have you aboard, man. Uh, love your writing, always been a big fan. So, yeah, I was, I was thrilled when uh, Nipun first mentioned that to me. But, by the way, Nipun Chopra, unable to join us tonight. Um, he'll probably be on the next pod, but just had some plans tonight. So, without further ado, let's get on to our guest. He is the founder of the National Independent Soccer Association, a.k.a. NISA. He also started a couple soccer clubs you might have heard of, Chicago Fire, Chicago Red Stars, and the Indy Eleven. It is Peter Wilt. Peter, thanks so much for joining us, and how's it going? Uh, great. Thanks very much for having me on. Pleasure, pleasure. So let's jump right into it without further ado, and let's start with the most current news, which was a little press conference held by the New York Cosmos today to kind of talk about their future and some other stuff. So Kartik, you were on the call so let's kick it over to you right away. Um, you mentioned a couple things that were very interesting before we started recording. So maybe you could uh, uh, touch on some of those and just what were your overall thoughts on what you heard today? Look, I mean, I think uh, Rocco Camiso makes so many good points from where I sit, right? Everybody gets lost in the, the style and there's, uh, I think, a concerted effort by some people who don't like the Cosmos, who don't like NASL to attack the messenger. Uh, he makes so many good, um, poignant uh, points about uh, the U.S. Soccer Federation governance, the state of the game in this country. But then he has this this kind of um, indiscipline, for lack of a better term, to just <laughs> ad lib and add kind all kinds of color and start attacking people personally and and. Um, so I, I just wish Camiso either sat and did a written interview with someone where they could kind of um, 
curtail some of this the excesses in his comments or had a uh, a PR person sitting next to him and would tell him when to stop because I, I have to say uh, everybody is, is going crazy about him on, on social media. Listen to some of the substance of what he's saying. You might actually agree with him, but it's tough to do that when he's so animated in, in how he presents himself. And Peter, did you get to catch any of the conference call? Um, if so, could you maybe share some thoughts on that? If not, maybe talk about the, the greater NASL, the, the recent announcement that the league will not be taking the pitch in 2018. Well, I did follow the SOC Takes uh, Twitter feed. So uh, <laughs> thank you guys very much for providing that, uh, along with a few of the other accounts of reporters who were on the call. And I, I, I tend to agree with Cardiff's general theme that um, the substance uh, gets lost in the style. And um, on one hand, I love the passion. I love that we have someone in American soccer that cares about the sport that much, that he's not only willing to invest 17 to $18 million a year and laugh it off, uh, but feels so strongly about his positions. And I think anyone would probably agree that Many of his positions are extreme or um, just counter to the mainstream, uh, almost for the sake of being counter. Uh, but he represents an important uh, perspective that maybe isn't always being considered in American soccer. So I, I'm thrilled that his voice is out there, and I hope he continues to uh, keep his perspective uh, in the dialogue. It, it's important to have. Aaron? That's not really much of a question, Kevin, but thanks for shouting my name at people. <laughs> Peter, you have more experience than anyone, obviously, in American soccer. You're kind of like, I, I like to call you my my uh, Johnny Soccer Seed, just sprinkling the game around everywhere you go, which is which is a fantastic thing, and, and the game needs you. This country needs you. In fact, I cannot wait to elect you president of something else. Um, it'll happen. But you've seen a lot of things. How did NASL get where it is? You know, What did NASL do right? What did NASL do wrong? I think in the big picture, it became marginalized and, um, for lack of a better word, irrelevant. And it ended up being put in a difficult position to get out of. Uh, the things it did right included um, providing independence. Uh, it, it, it provided a platform for entrepreneurs that cared about soccer that were willing to invest in it and get quality play on the field, that invest in players. Um, you know, at the end of the day, though, it was an island league that really wasn't connected to any other league, which in part is reflective of the American soccer landscape. And you can point to U.S. soccer. But really, and I know this is self-serving, but the way to rectify that is to connect it with um, other lower division leagues or create a multiple division league that can become relevant vis-a-vis uh, -vis promotion and relegation. John? 
it's it's just I've been following Yisa since the original announcement. What sort of mistakes or I guess misdirections or misadventures on the part of the NASL are you looking to avoid with NISA and what specifically stands out to you as particularly troublesome decisions they may have made? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I think certainly you have to look at the issue of um, either poorly vetting or um, allowing teams in that clearly weren't uh, prepared to uh, to join. And the poster child of that, of course, is uh, Ryo OKC. Um, I think maybe the broader part of that is not preparing the, the new teams to launch properly by providing them uh, the hand hand out, um, whether it's best practices or um, club services from a league standpoint, um, or, you know, better vetting, uh, assistance yeah. with providing uh, introductions to quality staff. At the end of the day, it's a people business. If you hire talented, hardworking people with good character, um, you'll be successful. And if you don't, you won't. And the league was uh, born uh, out of the desire to have the teams be more independent and really be decentralized from the league office. You know, that's the split from the USL was all about that. They didn't want the league telling the teams what to do. And I think perhaps they took that um, to an extreme to their detriment. So Peter, your two greatest strengths are fear, surprise, and ruthless efficiency. <laughs> why would why would a team not listen to you? Why like you go there, you represent Club Nine Sports and you represent Peter Wilt and all, everything that you've known. Why when you go to a club and you and you actually say this is what you do this is what you don't do why do they walk away from the table doing something different i think a lot of very smart businessmen or soccer people that have been successful in other aspects um, of the world whether it's other parts of soccer or other parts of business falsely believe that they have all the answers to doing it in professional soccer as well and are oftentimes disinclined to listen to people with experience. Um, I had someone in the NASL, it was a, a newer team last year, who came to visit me uh, in Indianapolis during his launch phase and spent a day with me and I took him through um, player budgets, how to put it together, the different aspects that go into it. Um, and then about eight months later, when I'm helping, uh, I think it was San Diego at the time, I was also helping Orange County get into NESL, the same person 
tried mansplaining player budgets to me. <laughs> and I kind of knocked my head against the wall. <laughs> and thought that I may have just been wasting my time the year before. So you know, it, it's a little bit the you can lead the horse to water thing. Uh, but you got to at least lead them to the water and give them a chance to be successful. If you don't even do that, they don't have a chance. Well, I appreciate you attempting to answer that. I mean, I think you did answer it, but I can tell you're walking on eggshells trying not to identify parties yeah. involved. Whatever. Um, not too it's many very options. professional of you. We, yeah, we, I, I think we all know who he's talking about, though. <laughs> I can, you, Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, Peter, I actually wanted to ask you what you thought – uh, USL has done well. Let's let's look at it from the other side of the coin. Oh, um, what they've done done well. Yeah, a lot of things. I think they've done a great job of uh, providing a strong central office, uh, good resources for the teams, um, and out of the ashes of near implosion just a few years ago, they have created incredibly stable platform. Uh, for their teams. And I think that's a, a, a in this environment, in this sport, in this country, uh, that's a, a great accomplishment. And um, I was with Stephen Short in Philadelphia last month at the convention, and I told him that. I said that they've done a, a marvelous job. And I obviously also see some of the liabilities or restrictions, limitations might be the better, the better word, of, um, of USL in a closed system. Uh, but, you know, it, it comes with that territory, and um, that's okay. I think there's a, a place in this country uh, for the USL, and I think um, you know, many of their teams are doing uh, very well. Um, it's still a tough uh, road to hoe for any lower division team, uh, even with the resources that the USL provides. Uh, so any team that is successful uh, should have a lot to be proud of. And we got several Twitter questions from our readers and listeners online. So we're going to jump out to one of those. I'd also like to tie in um, a question I had. I saw a recent NISA announcement that I was kind of fascinated by that um, it's kind of looking like there's a possibility of some type of fall tournament shaping up. Um, so I'm wondering, Peter, could you give me kind of a snapshot of what that might look like? Um, and also to tie in a quick Twitter question with that, um, shout out to, um, at dream underscore King and also James Godermeyer, a patron of ours uh, at Jimmy G underscore three. They both wanted to know the timeline for NISA. Um, now that the USSF election and the, the, um, preliminary injunction has been denied. Yeah. We're... You know, the basic answer is we're looking to launch Division Three uh, in spring of 2019, and uh, uh, higher division or divisions the year or two after that, 2020 and or 2021 for Division Two and or Division One. Um, division Four, I'd hope to try to get that up uh, either 2019 or 2020. Um, as we move on with that, I'm starting to believe because of the uh, bureaucracy or, you know, the, the technical aspects of getting that actually created by U.S. soccer 
it may take another year or two uh, because division four in the pro council does not even exist right now we need a policy change uh, uh, by u.s soccer and that, that's going to take some time as far as the fall tournament um i think that stems from a, a twitter uh comment i made that said it's a possibility and it's intended to leave open room for the existing NASL teams that have a desire to put a team on the field in the fall to have some sort of uh, continuation of what they've been providing their fans. It's not um, something that I necessarily desire. Uh, I don't think it really helps NISA by doing anything that quickly. But if there are some teams that need to get on the field uh, for the necessity of providing their fan base some continuity to last season, uh, the possibility exists that we could have some sort of tournament that could be augmented by existing teams in other leagues uh, or some early startups for the 2019 teams or a few of those. Uh, but right now, I think that's a bit of a long shot. What we're really aiming for is spring of 2019. And another Twitter question asked by Tim Pickerill at DeepBlack67 uh, wants to know, which I thought is a very interesting question. Um, might not be too easy to answer, but what what would you do if the USSF denied Nisa's D3 application? Well, if they had good reason for it, we'd... Um, go back and try to rectify areas that were short. But U.S. soccer has been very fair with NISA through every step of the way, letting us know what the minimum standards are, um, where waivers could be requested. Um, and I, I don't anticipate that they would unfairly uh, hold NISA back. Uh, we certainly would want to work within the professional league standards that are existing uh, to make sure that we qualify. John? What I'm curious uh, related to that is with those standards, we know that there were four groups in particular, uh, Milwaukee, Omaha, St. Louis, and Charlotte, who have applied but haven't been formally accepted. What sorts of things are preventing those bids from being made official at these stages? Yeah, in almost all cases, it's uh, the net worth of the lead investor. Ah, yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, we've seen that in very many places. Right now, we have four teams uh, that either have applications or letters of intent in uh, that uh, qualify, meet the minimum net worth. And um, we have four other letters of intent that are being reviewed and we hope to get back within the next week. So we're a week away, I, I'm, knock on wood, having as many as eight uh, committed teams. And I think if we get to that magic eight number, it's gonna kind of, and none of those, by the way, would I anticipate being uh, former NASL teams. And I think if we can get to the eight, that can almost open up a dam and get five to seven or eight more. So I, I think we're, it's a critical time for NISA right now. 
Um, you know, we're making our push for it. Uh, we obviously were put in a corner because of the presidential election for U.S. soccer and because of the NESL appeal um, hearing. And now that those two items are behind us, we're moving forward. And uh, there's no more excuses. These groups have to either uh, put up or shut up. And the responses we're getting uh, in the early going with this phase have been very positive. And our fingers are crossed that it will continue in the next week or two. Aaron? Yeah, something that hadn't really occurred to me while Peter was talking. I mean, you have you have been in a front office in, what, a half dozen leagues? You know, NASL, Major League Soccer, um, WPS, is that correct? Peter, did I, I lost you. Oh, I think he's there. But, uh... Uh, sorry, I muted you guys. Yeah, that's right, Aaron. <laughs> um, the whole alphabet soup, AISA, CISL, yeah. NPSL, even the USISL, I was on the board for a while. So my point is, I'm getting to the, the, the meat of this, is you were so bored with operating inside of other people's leagues that you decided to create your own. And that wasn't even enough for you. So you went from like level 10 to let's say level 99 by trying to start in division four as a, as a follow-up division two as a follow-up and all while simultaneously operating a successful division three. There's a lot on your plate here. Aaron, this is, it's really a, a reaction to what the teams are asking for. Um, you know, we had, I went to um, the NASL and NPSL about 15 months ago and suggested that they start a Division Three league to link them. And uh, they thought it was a good idea. And uh, at the end of the day, they asked me to do it. And so from that, we talked to dozens of, of teams, either existing teams or wannabe teams, and they, they were the ones that were giving us uh, the information on what they want. Uh, the NISA today looks different than the NISA proposed 15 months ago. And it's a, a response from the, 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 the teams. Uh, they wanted uh, multiple levels. They wanted uh, promotion and relegation. They wanted no entry fees. They wanted no territorial rights. Um, so it's, we're giving them what they want. And um, I, I do have quite a bit of experience launching teams, I think maybe more than anyone else uh, in, in, in the US or in the world, really. And I think that experience has been helpful in this process. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, all I'm doing is putting together a structure that um, the uh, owners are telling me they want. Peter, I mean, we've known each other for years now. I'm just concerned about you and the way that I need to know that you're exploring all the counties and all the different states. I need to know that you've been to the state houses. I need to know about the grilled cheeses, and I need to know about the different animals you've consumed throughout the course of a calendar year. I, I have been Twitter stalking you since the year 2012, and I haven't seen any any kind of... I mean, 
I'm just worried. All right. I, I just want to know that you have enough time for yourself. I and appreciate your concern, Aaron. With this massive project. Yeah. I, I, there's always time for another obsession, uh, but you know, starting this is something that's um, pretty special, obviously. I mean, it's it's something that could uh, change the landscape of the sport in this country, provide a platform for the teams to give them what they want, to incentivize the teams to invest in soccer, right? I mean, that's what promotion and relegation is about in the rest of the world is... Uh, incentivizing the teams to spend more money and attention on their players, their coaches, their facilities, um, the game experience, so that um, through merit, the strongest will succeed. And by putting this structure together, um, the teams will find their place. Um, so I really do believe that if we can just get this off the ground with the structure, um, it will be very successful. We'll not only get the teams, but we'll get the fan interest, which will then be followed quickly by broadcast and sponsor interest. Let's switch gears now and talk a little bit of Indy 11, if you don't mind, Peter. Um, let's start with a question from our good friend Drew Thompson with The Game Beckons, at WRX 6 on Twitter. Um Quick yes or no question for you. He wants to know, Peter, did you renew your season ticket for Indy 11? And also wants to know just overall what you think of the changes. And I'll add a little to that for you. Uh, I talked to you a couple weeks ago, Peter. You helped me out for a story. Appreciate your quotes for that. Um, The word you used, I think, um, to describe specifically the Indy 11's move to the USL was stability. So, um, but beyond just the USL, what do you think of the, the, um, the way Rennie's constructed his roster, the move to Lucas Oil Stadium, and all the pizzazz? I did not renew my season ticket. Too many Wednesday games. Can't make it. That, that, that darn five-hour, ten-hour round trip is going to keep me from, from going. <laughs> um, the, mm. the, the move uh, to uh, Lucas Oil, I think, is a good one. And um, I spoke to Ursal a few times about it. Uh, before the decision was made, and we discussed the pluses and minuses. And I told him, to me, the biggest plus was, uh, I called it environmental certainty. <laughs> At Carroll <laughs> Stadium, and not only is there not a roof over the seats, there's not a roof over the concourse. There's no place to hide. <laughs> so when it rains, you get hit. And when it lightnings, you get evacuated. Uh, and that had a real negative effect on season tickets. Um, and group tickets, I think. Uh, so I think the move indoors is is going to help them in that sense. Um, it'll be offset by the number of Wednesday games this year, but hopefully the following year when they get a, a bigger head start on scheduling, they'll be able to get more weekend dates. Uh, as far as how the team has been put together, um, you know, you, you, individually, uh, there's a lot of talent on that team. And... You know, outside of Cincinnati and Louisville, it may be one of the strongest teams in the USL. Um, that being said, it, the game's not won with individuals. It's 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 won as a team. But uh, Coach Rennie is, is very talented, experienced, and I, I would anticipate Indy 11 challenging uh, for at least a conference championship this year. 
Um, you know, I'm not thrilled with, unfortunately, uh, maybe it's the, I mean, very much is a byproduct of the NASL's instability and Ursal's desire and efforts to do everything he could to, you know, to try to stay in the NASL. But unfortunately, it put a lot of those players in a bad position. And I'm really disappointed that there's some very good people and not to mention good players who were put in a bad position uh, just a month ago after virtually every other team in the country had their rosters set and then did not have a chance to land on their feet. Um, these guys obviously aren't the high-priced, high-salaried <laughs> millionaire athletes that can afford to take a few months or a year off away from a paycheck and it's put some of them in a bad position. And um, I'm disappointed that uh, that has become a reality for some of Indy 11's former players. And Carter, well, let's, let's talk about that real quick. Uh, let me jump in, and I don't want to put you on the spot specifically, but let me ask you, as a professional in the industry, what do you think is important to do when you have um, a moment to let a player go? What, is, what are your rules for operation? What does Peter Will uh, like to do as a general yeah. manager? It's communication and being fair. That's two basic things. So directly with players, would you bring them in yourself or would, who would you, how would you handle letting a player go at that late stage? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, in person, whenever possible. And if, if not, you know, obviously you get on the telephone and you give them a chance to talk and make a case for himself. And not it, it, not just a last second thing. I mean, this was a very difficult off season, not just for Indy, but for all the NASL teams. And it's imperative that you keep the players abreast of what's going on uh, to the best you can. And things change every day, so it's it's it can be a difficult thing to do. Uh, but you know, they're also reasonable people, and I think if if you're transparent and and communicate well with them. Um, they'll appreciate it. And uh, I, I hope that was done. I don't know in, if it was done in all cases or not, uh, but I, I hope it was. And Kartik, one thing I wanted to ask you, because, um, you know, we all have the Indianapolis blinders on. So from a, from a Floridian's perspective, what did you think of the Indy 11's move to Lucas Oil Stadium? Uh, and then you also had, a, I think, a question to fire off for Peter, so feel free to do that as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I thought I thought it was a, a pretty logical move for all the uh, reasons Peter uh, outlined, and and um, I I have to agree with Peter. I guess Ursal wanted to um, wanted to give the NASL every shot uh, to to fix its problems, but it probably would have been better for Indy to jump when North Carolina did at the end of September and um, been able to deal with the players that way and kind of ramp up uh, for 20, uh, 2018 in that fashion. That having been said, getting Martin Rennie, your coach, I, I know real well, uh, going back to his days with Cleveland, actually, Cleveland City Stars, um, is, is a great hire. So I um, actually wanted to ask Peter along the same lines. Um, as you look at uh, the rivalries that are forming in the region, uh, Indy, Cincinnati, Louisville, St. Louis, 
Uh, talk about that as someone who spent more time around Midwestern soccer than anyone. Uh, how um, now the prospects are, I mean, back in the days when you, you, you were with the fire, your closest road trip was to Kansas City. Um, how, how cool is that for supporters? How, how big is that for the region? Yeah, it's, it's almost incalculable. It is it's huge. And I was talking on Twitter today about um, the cost of travel. And the person on Twitter was you know, really more concerned about the expenses rather than the rivalries. And I think the rivalries of, of a short trip are more important than the cost savings of a short trip. Um, in NASL, Indy's closest trip was Carolina and Minnesota. They're both 10 or 11 hours away. And for fans, it's just not practical uh, in large numbers to travel that distance. In Louisville, Cincinnati, and St. Louis, you have three teams right there where hundreds, if not thousands of fans are going to be able to make the, those trips. And when you have critical mass of opposing fans in your stadium, it creates an environment that's unlike any other in professional sports in the U.S. So the value of those regional rivalries is tremendous, and it's one thing the USL offers uh, right now because of the critical mass uh, they have throughout the country. John? Cincinnati is threatening to bring in... Sorry for cutting you guys off. No, go for it. Go for it. Uh, Cincinnati is threatening to bring 2,000 fans to the Indy 11 home opener. One... <laughs> What would that mean for Indy 11? And, and two, is that a realistic goal? Oh, sure. Um, you know, I remember those days when the Chicago Fire brought that many to Columbus. <laughs> the, the Fire actually brought that many to Columbus for a non-Fire game. It was a MLS Cup, I think, when... Hmm, was it, uh, who was that? It was Landon Donovan scored the game winner, so it was a, it's against the Galaxy, I think it was 2001. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Fire was in the semifinal, lost to L.A., and the Fire fans all thought they were going. And when they lost, they went anyways and, and just uh, cheered against uh, the Galaxy. Um, so, yeah, th those numbers are very uh, uh, doable. And I wouldn't call it a threat as much as an opportunity. Um, it's going to be a wonderful atmosphere, and it's great that it's the first game uh, – at Lucas Oil for Indy 11. It's going to kind of set the tone. And uh, I know the Brickyard Battalion will see it as a challenge to uh, make sure that the Cincinnati fans don't take over the venue from a sound and, and visual standpoint. And it'll be a challenge that uh, the BYB will uh, certainly live up to. John? With... Uh the other D3 league going on, what would you advertise as being, other than just the independence, I'm assuming that you're bringing up USL D3 or it's coming up in some of these conversations with prospective teams. What's part of the pitch of here's why you should consider NISA over that? Yeah, it's funny because most of the uh, investor groups we talked to uh, have already considered USL and have passed uh, because of their antipathy for the, the business model uh, and the structure. So they, they already get it that um, we're an open system um, with uh, 
merit-based promotion and relegation. The intellectual property is retained by the teams. Uh, it's the way the game is played in the rest of the world. Um, the lack of entry fees is obviously attractive, but what we, we tell them is rather than have you spend the money uh, giving it to the league, we'd rather have you invested in your own team uh, and, and build your team. So those are the main things. You know, the, the, the fact that it reflects the game in the rest of the world, the vision for promotion and relegation is what's most attractive to these investors. All right. Those that don't care about that stuff, um, they're going to USL, and that's fine. Um, it's, a, it's a different model. It's not a, a bad model. It's not a wrong model. It's just different. All right. Thank you. Another thing I wanted to ask, uh, this question is for both you, Peter, and you, Kartik. Um, apologies if it's kind of a long-winded question, but uh, everyone you know, is talking about Soccer United marketing lately. Um, and one thing I wanted to, to, to ask you guys to try to wrap my head around some is that, um, okay, I, I feel like some doesn't do itself any favors in that, for one, it doesn't necessarily have to exist. You know, MLS could have its own marketing and licensing department. U.S. soccer could have its own marketing, you know, and they probably still do that do other types of marketing or, or whatever. Um, so the, that third party doesn't necessarily have to exist. Um, and then by not doing itself any favors, I mean, uh, they kind of operate uh, in the quote unquote underworld. You know, they supposedly have a website, but all it does is link you to, to one page of MLS soccer.com. Um, you know, email us here to, to advertise with us. So they kind of operate in the shadows and don't, you know, almost like they're being unnecessarily secretive. Um, and then certainly there are some conflicts of interest or potential conflicts of interest, we'll call them. So my question to both of you is, what are the benefits, the pros um, or cons of the decision of, you know, MLS to, to use the marketing arm of some rather than um, just handle everything themselves under, you know, as MLS? Who was that for? That's uh, you can go first, Peter. Oh, well, originally, I, I believe it was structured that way to keep Ken Horowitz um, out of MLS. <laughs> I know Kardec will that's appreciate music to that. My, yeah, that's my, music to my ears. P Peter, actually, when you mentioned that game a minute ago in Columbus, I was going to go to that game because we thought the fusion was going to be in that game. Mm -hmm. And uh, not only was the fusion not in that game, but Horowitz had bailed on uh, the team by that time. So yeah. continue. Well, it was it was structured that way so that not every MLS owner would automatically be part of it. And if you're not part of it, the value of your team is diminished tremendously. So that was, I think, the basis uh, of it. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's a business-to-business -business company, so I, I don't know that it's really lurking in the shadows. It's just more of a, you know, unsexy uh, business that, uh, by definition, isn't as uh, out in public as the professional soccer league part of it. Kartik? Yeah, I, I think that there is a, um, 
I don't know. I think I get the sense that there's a reluctance to identify um, some, you know, it was a big topic, obviously, today on Rocco's call. But there's a reluctance among and I, and I know some of the, uh, the some personnel fairly well. There's a general reluctance to um, make it appear like it's um, it's a completely MLS driven um driven entity so for example i think obviously they had they had um sold part of the business of providence capital and they bought that back there's always been the possibility of spinning it off and uh creating uh an img type company uh on the outside that could raise revenue for mls owners in the short term right if there's a cash shortfall by selling equity stakes in some which they've done once before there's also i think the um the general feeling that um, they don't want too much of this to be public because it does lend credence to uh, the feeling that there's some degree of uh, favoritism in the U.S. Soccer Federation for Major League Soccer. Or there's some degree of uh, um, collusion, uh, to use the term that's in this NASL lawsuit, going on between the U.S. Soccer Federation and MLS because the marketing partner is um, is connected to MLS. So. If you're uh, MLS licensing or MLS services, uh, it makes it that much more difficult to, to create at least the imp- appearance of uh, some degree of deniability or some degree of independence. And um, I should point out that even Carlos Cordero himself, I mean, he's, he's perceived as an establishment candidate, but even he, uh, during the presidential race, uh, made a point about uh, his, uh, his personal kind of qualms about the, the, the way the whole sum deal was structured, or at least the relationship between sum and U.S. soccer. So maybe he's going to address that in the next uh, four years. John or Aaron, uh, any final questions you want to fire off for either of these guys? This is mostly just a bit of a curiosity thing. After the issues that we all heard about with the Chicago NASL project. What are your thoughts on this new group looking to put a USL team up in that new stadium? I love it. I think it's going to be very successful. I met with the Sterling Bay folks about a year ago, and uh, we talked about an NASL team there. And uh, they were very interested, but obviously the NASL model was imploding and that didn't build much confidence in the league for them. Um, so they elected to go uh, the USL route. I think, you know, they're very smart people and have a, a good vision and um, it will be tremendously successful. All right, Aaron, thanks. Aaron Kartik, any final thoughts? Yeah, I, I wanted to ask uh, Peter with his experience of starting up the Chicago Red Stars and also running the organization, owning uh, the or- part of the organization and running it, um, and having to deal with the fire <laughs> as a, as your landlord. How um, this relationship that's evolving between women's teams uh, and men's owners and is developing because we're seeing more of the independent women's teams now, the Breakers fold, and more of an influence of MLS owners or USL owners with their connected women's teams in, in NWSL. Is there uh, a possibility of still keeping viable uh, independent women's teams or are they going to all need to be connected to men's teams? Going yeah, forward? that's a great question. And I, I think you need to bifurcate the independent owner into 
two segments. One would be, uh, I'll call it low net worth independent owners, and the other would be high net worth independent <laughs> owners. Uh, right, right. <laughs> that, like with think, everything. Right. I think long term, um, MLS owners owning NWSL teams is generally good um, because they could provide the resources, the uh, cross marketing, cross promotion. Uh, synergies that go along with having a men's team. Um, but uh, they'll always, unfortunately, be the, the lower priority. You know, maybe not consciously, but they'll be the second team. Whereas having the independent owner, um, you have the focus of that ownership. They're the main priority. Uh, but if it's a, a low net worth independent owner, you're better off having uh, being the lower priority of the higher net worth MLS team owner. Uh, and, and I think that's a balancing act that uh, NWSL will need to uh, carry forward. Uh, but so far, so good. I think the NWSL has done a fantastic job of um, maintaining uh, budget uh, discipline, uh, for lack of a better term and growing slowly and not expanding even when they have the opportunity to do so if it's not the right way to do it. Um, I think the breakers situation was an anomaly in a way uh, because they thought they had a transition in place and it fell apart at the last moment. Um, so that, that was a real shame because you obviously never want that to happen for either the athletes, the staff, or the fans. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. But yeah, you've got some uh, um, lower budget NWSL teams, uh, whether it's Sky Blue or uh, the Red Stars or I think even Washington, that will have to come up with a game plan, whether it's getting additional investors involved or partnerships with the MLS teams that can allow them to compete uh, on and off the field with the MLS-owned NWSL teams that are adding teams, whether it's for uh, programming purposes so that their venues have more dates or for uh, more sponsorship opportunities for their men's team sponsors or for their suite holders. Um, you know, there's lots of reasons for an MLS team to want to have uh, their own NWSL team. You know, in the Red Stars case, I'm glad to see that they're working together on a double header this year. <clears throat> I think that's a great step. And uh, Arnhem Whistler has done a fantastic job keeping uh, that team going in a positive direction, uh, both on and off the field uh, throughout the NWSL years. Okay. And I would like to thank our entire panel for this episode, Aaron Gunyan, John Leonard, Kartik Krishnire, and our guest, Peter Wilt. I am your host, Kevin Johnston. Also, thank you to our sponsor, Roughneck Scarves, official scarf supplier of MLS, USL, and U.S. soccer. Get custom scarves for your group or team at roughneckscarves.com. This has been episode 42, and we will see you very soon for episode 43. Good night.